I'll try not to make as many mistakes with the sermon as I made with uh, the announcements. <laughs> if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah again, chapter 28. And we're looking at the same passage as we did last week. We're looking at verse 23 to 29 again. Isaiah chapter 28, verses 23 to 29. And we're looking at the discipline of God, or God's discipline for his children. And this is part two of this particular um, topic. Read with me. Isaiah chapter 28, verse 23. Give ye ear, and hear my voice. Hearken, and hear my speech. Doth the ploughman plough all day to sow? Doth he open and break the clods of his ground? When he hath made plain the face thereof, doth he not cast abroad the fitches and scatter the cumin, and cast in the principal wheat and the appointed barley and the rye in their place? For his God doth instruct him to discretion, and doth teach him. For the fitches are not threshed with a threshing instrument, neither is a cartwheel turned about upon the cumin, but the fitches are beaten out with a staff and the cumin with a rod. Bread corn is bruised, because he will not ever be threshing it, nor break it with the wheel of his cart, nor bruise it with his horsemen. This also cometh from the Lord of hosts, which is wonderful in counsel and excellent in working. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer and commit this time to him. Father in heaven, thank you once again for this time. We just thank you for the blessings that you have given us in our salvation. And as we experience the fruits of our Lord Jesus Christ in um, this blessing that we have because of the work that he's done. And Father, I pray this morning that our hearts would be open to your word, that we would learn how it is that you deal with us as a father, how you instruct us, how you teach us, how you discipline your children. Father, help us to understand how good you are this morning. We commit this time to you, and we pray that, the Jesus, that Jesus' name will be uplifted in this place today, in all of our lives. Amen. Ever seen a blacksmith at work? Ever seen when they get a piece of iron and they want to make something out of it? The first thing they have to do is essentially what? They have to heat it. You have to make it hot. And you have to make it very hot because if you don't make it hot enough, it isn't malleable, which means you can't beat it into the shape that you're looking for. But if you've ever seen the the next phase, which is grabbing this massive hammer and they start beating it around and, and, they, and they, they form it into shapes. Um, when a blacksmith wants to create something um, of, of a particular strength and shape, there are two things that need to be applied. First is heat, the next is some sort of pressure. The same thing applies with pottery. We had a, uh, a, a conference uh, a while ago, I think it was last year's one, um, where we looked at how a potter creates pots. And the first thing the potter does is what? He puts pressure. He actually he, he moulds the, the pot into the, the shape that he wants. Then they wait for it to dry and then they paint it with some sort of a coating. And then what's the final stage of that one? They throw it in, in, a, in a kiln to make it hard and impervious. So... There seems to be, in this world, when you want to create something of strength and of beauty and something that's fit for purpose, uh, it often requires some sort of heat. Um, today they've got these 3D printers. Anyone seen the way they work? If you haven't, go and ask Greg, he's got one of those things. Um, and, and they make, uh, they actually can make any design, really any 3D design, and it prints it in, in layers... Uh, it starts from the bottom, it works its way up, and whatever design you, you want in 3D, it'll print it with, with melted... Is it plastic? Yeah. So the same sort of thing there applies. This still requires pressure and heat. It requires heat to melt the plastic, and it requires pressure to push it into actual place, to, to push it through the actual thing. So almost in every way, heat and pressure are required to create things in our world. In the same way... Um, God is refining us. God refines his children. God purifies his children. And he works with us much like a potter and a blacksmith. In the end, he has a particular design in mind that he wants to see in us. He wants to bring out. He knows it's already there. He's just working on us to actually create that image. And the image is 
the actual image of his son. So he works with us. <coughs> now, for those of you who know about, um, about metals and, and, and things such as uh, and working with metal, um, the more heat, the better. Sometimes we look at our lives and we say, oh, it's too much heat, too much stuff going on, too much pressure. Sometimes the better, the more heat, the better it is. The more pressure, the better it is. When Christians go through suffering, they often ask this question, why is what God punishing me? The assumption that we make when we go through difficult times ourselves is that for some reason God's punishing me for something I've done. Now, that's not normally the case. Sometimes it's the case because God actually disciplines his children because they've been disobedient. But in many cases, that's not the case. He's applying pressure to us and heat to us in order to mould us into what he's, look, what he's thinking of. Now, people go through suffering and pain for various reasons. We know there's suffering in this world and we know there's a whole lot more of it than we experience in our lives here in this country. There are people who are going through extraordinary pain in, in various countries around the world. They go through um, unbelievable persecution, unbelievable suffering in terms of um, not being able to eat, not being able to drink water, having no clothing, having no housing, being persecuted by the government, um, being ostracised because of your faith, your colour, your race, whatever it might be, um, there are people in this world who go through a lot much greater suffering than we probably will ever experience in our lives. We often have it very, very easy over here. Um, and when we look at ourselves, we often forget about other people who are experiencing much greater, much greater torment than we do. There is much suffering in the world and there are many reasons for suffering and not all suffering that people experience, including ourselves, is to teach us a specific lesson. But for Christians, all suffering is useful to make us stronger and to draw us closer to the Lord. When an athlete's being trained by a coach, let's say you're a, uh, a long-distance runner and your coach wants you to, to become better at long-distance running, um, he doesn't get you to do every exercise under the sun, does he? He'll get you to do specific exercise, exercises to actually get you honed in to produce the best results for that thing. He doesn't make you swim every day like a, like a, um, a swimmer. He won't make you do pole vaulting. He doesn't make you do high jump. He doesn't make you do a whole range of other exercises that aren't related to that. But he... He specifically wants you to learn certain things in order to achieve the best results in that sport. With, for Christians, not every suffering we go to or go through is actually meant to teach us a specific lesson. But every resistance that we come against, every, everything that we experience in our lives is actually useful for us to become stronger generally. Do you understand what I'm saying? For example, someone who's... who's an athlete who's training for the Olympics, it's good for them to walk. It's good for them to eat right. It's good for them to, to experience other types of exercise and things in general life, not to sit on a couch and be a couch potato, but it's good for them to remain active outside of their specific training program. It's the same thing for Christians. God isn't teaching us a specific lesson with every suffering we go through, but every suffering can be useful for us to make us stronger. So there was a subject I did at uh, university. And I chose to do this subject when I be first became a Christian university called the philosophy of religion. It's a bit of a waste of time, to be honest with you. 
And it was how, it, and none of them believed anything anyway. The philosophy of religion, the, the teachers never believed, didn't believe in God. They just threw all these different philosophical ideas around and we just played around with them and did nothing with them. I was a new Christian and I was trying to, I wanted to understand what other people believed about religion. But one of the questions they threw at us, which almost was like a trump card for them, was if God is good and all-powerful, how can there be suffering in the world? All right, so the argument's simply this. If God is good, he doesn't want people to suffer. Is that fair enough? If God is all-powerful, then there's nothing that can stop him from stopping suffering. So if there's suffering, it means either God isn't good or God isn't all-powerful. Does that sound like a, a, a neat argument to you? Well, it's a, it's a scam of an argument. Because for the atheist, it's, it's, it's boiled down to that simple equation. Well, that takes a whole lot of other stuff as an assumption. Why does God allow suffering? Now, there are many reasons God allows suffering in this world. And it's not because he is not able to stop it, and it's not because he's not good. Let me give you a few of them. We live in a fallen world. And it's fallen not because of him, but because he gave us the freedom to choose to fall. We live in a fallen world because man has chosen to cut himself away from God. He has chosen not to bow the knee to God, who is the creator and sustainer of this world and everything else in it. And even though God has not abandoned man, God has withdrawn himself somewhat. And that's why we die. That's why there's death in the world. Because the, the power of God doesn't flow through and sustain things to live forever. God has withdrawn himself somewhat. Because, he, because we live in a rebellious world which refuses to have God as their king. So we live in a fallen world because of a choice that we made. Secondly, we have an enemy who is focused on hating and destroying mankind. Satan, who opposes God, who took over, if you remember the, the sermon I gave about the dominion of the world, when God created Adam, he gave dominion to Adam and said, rule this world, be masters over everything, the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, the beasts in the land, he, and, and God said to man, subdue it and, and manage it. When man bowed the knee to Satan in the garden, he effectively gave dominion of the world to Satan. And Satan became, as the Bible says, the God of this world. He is now the prince of the power of the air. He is what the Bible calls part of the principalities and powers that are enthroned in high places. And this being and all his cohorts hate mankind. And he has sought throughout the ages to destroy mankind. Now, why would he want to destroy mankind? Because we're created in God's image. Even as fallen beings, we still remind him of God. So he would rather destroy us and turn us further away from God. And that's what he's been doing for the last five or 6,000 years. So we have suffering because we live in a fallen world. We have suffering because we have an invisible enemy who is trying to destroy us. We have suffering because mankind often ignore God's warnings and we become the victims of our own choices. The Titanic sank despite the warnings that, was, that were given to it. They chose to continue on their path, despite the warnings, and it sank. Today, many people find themselves in difficult situations despite the obvious warnings that God gives to us. And there are plenty of warnings in the Bible. The Bible gives us plenty of warnings about living in sin. It gives us plenty of warnings about do not lie, do not steal, do not cheat, do not commit adultery. Put God first. Do you think God makes arbitrary rules for no reason? Of course he doesn't. He has a reason for everything. 
even the harshest rule that he gives us is for our benefit. And it's the same type of rules that we give our children because we don't want them to injure themselves or kill themselves. And God gives us these rules in order to protect us. But man actually refuses those rules. And despite God's warning, says, no, no, I don't want that. I want to go the other way. So the results we see in our society, the degradation we see in our society, are there mainly because man has refused to heed God's warnings. So we have suffering because we refuse to heed God's warnings. Yes, we fell, but even now we continue to refuse. Almost every prophet in the the Bible was killed by the people they came to save, including the greatest prophet of all, Jesus, who was crucified on the cross, simply for warning people to turn away from sin and to look at God and repent. We have sufferings also. God allows sufferings to remind us that we have a limited time on this earth. We are fragile beings. So when we suffer... It's meant to remind us that we will not live forever, that we face death. When we see death all around us in many ways, it's meant to draw us closer to God. It's meant to lead us to salvation. It's meant to make us ask the question, if I'm only here for a short time, what comes after? And instead of actually being honest with ourselves and saying, oh, mate, actually, if I only live for 70 or 80 years on this earth, And there's a long time after that in terms of you can't compare eternity to 70 or 80 years. Shouldn't I be investing my time to find out what's going on after? Yet man continues to put a a veil over his eyes and say, I don't want to think about it. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to think about it. So they keep themselves amused and bemused and busy and looking in every other direction as long as it stops them from thinking about death. When you're young, you never think you're going to die. When you're young, you feel as if you're almost invincible. When you get middle-aged, you start to realise things start falling apart. The sad thing is in our culture, it's, it's almost like people live as if they're going to live forever. They don't think about what is coming after. And so they actually fool themselves and they convince themselves that this is all there is. So I just need to make the most of what's here now. But yet, if you're going to walk through a door and you don't know what's on the other side, wouldn't it be wise to at least do some research as to what might be on that other side? And people refuse. So suffering's... God allows suffering in the world to remind us that we are fragile and have a limited time here, but oftentimes man refuses to listen. More warnings. There are also sufferings in this world to save us from worse sufferings later. There are some sufferings that we go through to save us from worse sufferings. When you get a flu shot... You go through some suffering with a needle, but what's the purpose of a flu shot? It's to save you from getting a bad flu later on, which might knock you out for weeks. Or if you have some other type of whatever it is, you go through certain things sometimes in order to save you from going through something worse later. And sometimes those sufferings are important. They're meant to protect us from worse ones. Then there's suffering that comes because some people have been specially called by God to go through those sufferings. Yeah, sometimes I think about, oh, we're sitting here in a nice church and some people say, oh, yeah, as a pastor, you must go through a whole lot of um, stuff and worrying about people. Yeah, there, there are responsibilities that come through um, being the, the pastor of a church. There are. But I often think about those missionaries out there who are in countries where um, they're often alone, vulnerable, and they're attacked. I often think about them as being the ones who are on the front of this battlefield 
and who are taking massive risks because they've been called by God to actually serve him in that way. So sometimes we go through sufferings because God has called us specifically to go through suffering because of a special calling. Paul's an example of this, and we'll look at his life today. And missionaries are often, as I've mentioned, this type go through this type of suffering. And finally, there is the type of suffering which we are looking at in this particular passage today, which is specifically designed to teach us, to develop us, to help us to grow in a specific way because God is moulding us to become holy. God wants us to be holy. So it's up to us to examine the suffering that we go through. So it's good to take stock sometimes, isn't it? Take stock. To sit back, reflect on what you're going through in your life and say, is the suffering I'm going through, and you're probably going through suffering on multiple levels. One might be you might have a bad back. One might be that you have sufferings with relatives or friends. Another one might be you're suffering at a job or you're suffering somewhere else. If you list those sufferings, it's a good idea to actually analyse them and examine yourselves with respect to those sufferings. Is that type of suffering something I'm going through because of my choices? Because I've refused to heed God's warnings? Because I'm refusing to follow his, his word? Or is that suffering a simple part of going through suffering that everyone goes through in this world, which I can still use to draw me closer to God? Is it because of my bad choices? Or it's just because I live in a fallen world and I'm going through suffering like everyone else. God doesn't promise to protect us from more suffering. He doesn't. He doesn't say that when we get saved, he's going to shield us from all the suffering that everyone else goes through. No, he doesn't. Or is it because God is trying to teach me something very specific in my life? Let's look at this type of specific teaching that God does with his children. Let me just recap quickly. Last week we examined the relationship between the Lord and his children from the viewpoint of growth. We saw that the Lord desires all of his children to grow and to succeed. He wants us to grow. And that just as a loving parent, a wise coach, a perfect teacher, or an impeccable leader in an army, he seeks to train us in order for us to become holy. We were saved by the Lord. We were born again not to leave us the way we were. God loves us too much for that. Parent, if, you, if your child was born and then three years later it looked exactly the same way it was born, the automatic assumption you'd make is there's something wrong with my baby. And you'd be running around probably frantic bringing it from one doctor to the other. What's wrong with my baby? And you'd want an answer. Do you not think that God, when he saves us, and the Bible says we are born again. We are born babies in a spiritual sense that God wants us to grow. Do you think he wants us to stay exactly the same? No. His goal for us is to grow. Not to remain the same way that we were saved. He does not want us to stay babies our entire lives. But as any good parent, he wants us to grow. And that takes pressure, it takes heat, it takes discipline. God loves us too much to leave us the way we are. When he saved us, he didn't transform us in a moment. Oh yes, he may have given you some indication that he was now present in your life. He may have taken away some things to show you, see, I'm there. It's true what you're going through. But his ultimate aim is to make us like his son, is to transform us, to help us to grow. That's why we must endure discipline and obey the instructions that we were given by the Lord in his word. Every child needs to be disciplined. Every athlete needs to be disciplined. Every student needs to be disciplined. Every soldier needs to be disciplined. Unless there are consequences, you won't pass your exam. You'll get killed in the battlefield. You won't win any medals if you don't train. 
And we are in God's family. We are on God's team. We are Jesus' disciples and we are in the army of the Lord. And we need to be fully convinced here that whatever we go through, God is in it for our best. He loves us more than our natural parents. He loves us more than our natural friends, spouses, children, whoever it is that you have around you that you believe loves you. They cannot love you like God loves you. They cannot know you like God knows you. And God understands us better than anyone else does. So we need to be convinced, first of all, that God is good. He is good. He is good. And his love endures forever. So as we continue through this sermon, we look at this couple of, um, of examples here. I want you to ask yourself these questions. Am I a willing student? Do I listen to God? Do I obey him? Do I understand how important my growth is to him? If I'm going around just doing my own thing in my own time, am I just kidding myself? Am I really saved? Or am I just playing the religion game? As many millions of people are in this world, appeasing my conscience just by going to church and saying, see, I've done something good. This is not about that. You cannot gain merit with God by doing good works. The Bible does, teaches the exact opposite of that. Am I a willing student? Do my goals align with God's goals for me and for this world? Am I growing in the Lord? Is my desire to grow closer to him? Is he the most important thing in my life? Is everything else taking a back seat to him? Because I'll tell you now, if, he, if they do not, if your work, if your enjoyment, if your pleasure, if your family, if your spouse, if you don't come second to him, then you have your priorities upside down. If I look at this church, I must admit to you that it discourages me when I don't see people at church on a Sunday. It discourages me. And I can't understand how we give God so little of our attention. If people put everything else on a Sunday morning, which is... Essentially, the, the main time that we are meant to be together to encourage one another and people put work and enjoyment and family and everything else before him and make an excuse for it as well. I have to ask myself this question. What do they really think about God? Where does he come in their list of priorities? People convince themselves, Christians convince themselves all too often that oh, either I'm not getting anything out of it, or, I don't enjoy it when I go there, or you know, so-and-so is there who I don't get along with. You know, the devil throws every possible angle at us to stop us from joining together to listen to God's word and to pray together. He will attack from every possible angle and convince us it's not that important. I'm telling you it is. And I'm telling you that every time you aren't here on a Sunday, and I'll even throw in a Wednesday, if you're at home doing nothing on a Wednesday evening, please, let me challenge you today. No, let me convict you. If you have no desire to pray with your brethren, what desire do you have? To watch TV? Tell me, are you too tired? To be praying together. What's important to you? Don't, please, don't kid yourself. The last thing I want for you is for you to be standing before the Lord one day and he says, sorry, I never knew you. Do you not think that's a distinct possibility if you don't put him first in your life? We learnt about farming last week and how a farmer does things methodically because he wants fruit. 
so that he plows the ground, he breaks the clods, he sows the seed, he waits for the harvest to come up. He then has to thresh it, he has to cut it, he has to gather it into his barn. He has to then take the fruit out of that uh, thing, sometimes with pressure and beating. Sometimes we go through the same things in our lives. But how many of us, let me ask you this morning, how many of us at the first taste of suffering do we say, don't want it. I don't want to go through that lesson. That class is a bit too hard. So we ignore him. And then we find ourselves in a situation where we're unhappy. Where nothing seems to go right for us. Where all the things around us seem to be one problem after the other. And we say to ourselves, God, why are you doing this to me? Maybe it's because you refuse to grow. Maybe because the decisions we make come back to bite us later on. Please don't fool yourself today. Now, I, I, I try to challenge us every week over here because our time is short. Now, I was saved when I was 19 years old and I regret taking so long. But how many of us go through year by year by year by year and year after year, month after month, with no change in our lives? Can you possibly be happy with yourself? Because I'll tell you something, God isn't. While God weeps for you because he wants you to grow, we're too busy chasing the garbage and the refuse in this world. In the end, God wants fruit from us. He wants us to grow. And unfortunately for us, we have to go through pain to produce it. And if any of us thinks that we're better than Jesus Christ, who had to go to a cross to bear that fruit, who do we think we actually are? Do we think we're greater than our master? Jesus said, if they persecuted him, they will persecute us. Persecution is a measure of your genuineness as a Christian. If you do not experience persecution in your life, I will almost guarantee you, you aren't living it. You aren't living it. We're not called to live lives of ease. We are called to live for the Lord. Now you might say to yourself, oh, you know, I've been through, I'm going through a lot of pain and I might be learning as I'm going along. Maybe you're angry with God. Maybe you blame God for what you're going through in your life. But the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8, it says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Do you believe that today? I reckon... The Apostle Paul says the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared. doesn't matter what suffering you go through today. It can't compare with what's on the other side. With what's coming soon. And in verse 28 of the same chapter, Paul says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. That all things work together for good is not some reference to some cosmic coincidence that just happens to work out in the end. It doesn't work like that. It's not some coincidence or, or luck or sheer chance that things seem to work out the right way. There is no magic involved over here, but it's God who works all these things for our benefit. The question is whether we actually accept them or not. Or whether we, at the first sign of suffering, turn the other way and, and run away. Because we refused to learn the lesson. But Paul was persuaded. He says in verse 18, For I reckon that the sufferings of this world are not worthy to be compared. In verse 18. And in verse 28 he says, And we know that all things work together for good. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 38. Because he, he then finishes with another verse. Romans chapter 8, verse 38. 
Now verse 18 says, For I reckon. Verse 28 says, And we know. And verse 38 says, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you believe that? Paul was persuaded of that. He reckoned whatever sufferings he was going through weren't even worthy to be compared to what was coming after. And he knew that all things work together for good. See, these are the words of a man who, if you go back to Acts chapter 9, verse 15, go back to Acts chapter 9, verse 15, these are the words of a man who went through extraordinary pain and suffering. In fact, from the very beginning, at Saul's calling, God promised him he was going to go through suffering. So the Lord speaks to Ananias, who was living in Damascus, about Saul who was coming along. And he says in verse chapter 9, verse 15, But the Lord said unto him, that's to Ananias, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. You like that as a job description? How would you like that? What a job description. I'm going to use this guy to bear my name, to share the gospel with the Gentiles. He's going to be my man to the Gentiles. That's a huge responsibility. And he's going to bear my name before kings and before everyone in the Gentile world. And on top of that, he goes, and I'm going to show him, I'm going to show him how much suffering he's going to go through for my name's sake. Would you sign that job description? Would you accept that job offer? If someone came and said to you, I'm going to show you how much suffering you're going to go through for me. Now what's the pay, Lord? I'll show you what sort of pay I'm going to give you a bit later on. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. So... Was God's calling of Saul, who later got called Paul, was his calling of him fulfilled that he was going to show him suffering? Oh, yeah. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 says, Are they ministers of Christ? This is Paul speaking. I speak as a fool. I am more in labours, more abundant. In stripes, that's whippings, above measure. In prisons, more frequent. In deaths, oft. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. Forty whippings, minus one. Five times. His back must have been an absolute disaster zone. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and day I have been in the deep. A whole day. He was in the water, in journeyings, often in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, beside those things that are without, that came upon me, upon daily, upon me daily, the care of all the churches. You like that? Paul was sharing the life of an apostle in Jesus Christ was not a carefree ride. He said to them, there are some apostles who are, who are here who are saying that I'm not enough, even an apostle. And let me show you what I've been through as part of my apostleship. It involved hard and tiresome work, he says. Hard and tiresome work. He calls those labours. Whippings. Looking daily in the face of death. He didn't know from one day to the other when they would come and take him away and possibly kill him. Not only were there dangers and sufferings which came with the job, but he also endured shipwrecks, stonings. Now, I don't know if you can imagine what it's like to be stoned. 
these aren't, we used to throw stones at each other when we were little kids. And there were stones about that big, those little, those little grey rocks. We used to throw them at each other and sometimes used to get hit in the head and used to cry and stuff like that. They don't throw stones like that when they stone people. They're throwing stones like that. And if you, the, the purpose of stoning is to hopefully get knocked out early because the rest of it's a very painful thing. You, you got rocks flying in your direction from every angle. Now, Paul was stoned. And he survived. And he was beaten with rods. He was whipped a number of times. Now, I'm not sure how you understand. When they whip people, it tears the flesh from your back. It tears the flesh from your back. How long do you think it would have taken Paul to heal from those? Yet he was, he was whipped five times. Five times he was whipped. Extraordinary. And beside all that, he says that he was often weary, in pain, always on high alert. He was thirsty, cold, and even naked. <laughs> Let me ask you today, how do your sufferings compare? Do you even have, do you or I even have one thing to complain about? What, I haven't got a job. I haven't got, what, what haven't we got here? What reason do we possibly have to actually complain to the Lord? This man was naked, cold, in famine, beaten, rejected by his own people. I don't see any complaints here. So much for work cover. No income protection insurance there. So not only was he a, a servant of the Lord, he went hungry. Now, wouldn't you... Uh, I think to myself, I'd be complaining. God, you know, if I'm going to be beaten, if I'm going to do this hard work, surely you can feed me. No, not even that he complained about. And in the end, he was killed for what he believed. This, uh, much of the sufferings that Paul experienced were because he lived in a fallen world like we do. And the sin that exists in people's hearts... The devil's resistance against the gospel and the weakness and the frailty of human beings. But in, in addition to these sufferings, not only did Paul have to experience, and Jesus says, he's going to experience pain. He's going to experience suffering for my sake. God had extra for him, more above those. Do you like that? Now, that's a teacher. He said, Paul, that's not enough what you're going through because I've got a concern for you. Let me show you something. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So Paul not only went through these unbelievable sufferings simply because he was sharing the gospel and doing what, obeying what Jesus said. Okay? But Jesus then says something else to Paul. And he says in verse 7, and Paul shares this, he says, And lest I should be exalted above measure, that means get too proud or get too ahead of myself through the abundance of the revelations there was given to me a thorn in the flesh a messenger of satan to buffet me that means to hit him to beat him lest i should be exalted above measure for this thing i besought the lord thrice that's three times that it might depart from me and he said unto me my grace is sufficient for thee for my strength is made perfect in weakness most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities. You know what your infirmities are? Weaknesses and sicknesses. That the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So in order for Paul to be protected from becoming too proud, you see, because that word revelations, Paul was getting direct teaching from Jesus himself. He didn't even 
learn most of his stuff from the other apostles. He learned them directly from Jesus. Jesus was teaching him directly. And he received things the other apostles didn't even get. So Jesus knew that he had the danger of actually becoming proud and saying, well, I'm learning all this stuff directly from God. And I get stuff that you don't get. So what does Jesus do? He gives him a thorn in the flesh, some type of illness, and we don't know exactly what that was. Some people say it was his eyesight. Some people say it was because of the many beatings that he had that God didn't allow him to heal from those things. But whatever it was, the Lord chose to give Paul a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan. So a, he allowed a demon to get through that would, buffet, that would buffet Paul in a physical way. Would you not expect the Lord to protect you every day of your life from the attacks of the devil? Yet for that purpose, the Lord allowed a devil to get through. One in particular who gave Paul some physical ailment that would humble him, that would keep him from being proud. What was more important to God? Tell me, which is more important? His pain? His physical needs? His comfort? Or was Paul's spiritual life more important to God? Which in God's mind do you think was more important? You know the answer to that. So which, if it was the truth for Paul, isn't it true for you and me? So why do we want to take our lives so easy? Why do we think to ourselves that we don't have to go through pain in order to grow? If that's true for Paul, then it should be true for us. Let's look at Job. Most of us know... You can start turning to Job now. Most of us know Job as a righteous man. If we compared our righteousness to Job's, in most cases we would come up far short. And Job went through an amazingly difficult time in his life. Lost his, 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 uh, his assets, lost his family, lost almost everything that he had. On top of that, he ended up getting all these sicknesses and, he's, and on top of that, his wife's actually hammering him as well in the background. She was not supporting him. And then his friends decide to come along and not support him either. The whole book of Job deals with suffering. It deals with the way the devil attacks. It deals with God's righteousness. But the Bible teaches us one important thing in this book. Is that God wanted Job to grow. That in all of this, there was a purpose for it. Is that Job had a weakness. Job had something God wanted to work with. And if Job's weakness from reading his account is that he was inclined to self-righteousness. He was inclined to blow his own trumpet. And even though he was doing those things, turn to chapter 31 of Job. Let's look at some of the things that Job was happy to defend himself with when his friends came and said, oh, it must be because you've done something wrong, Job. Job was ready there with his list of the things that he did. We'll go through this very quick. Job 31.1. Job said, I made a covenant with mine eyes. He's saying, I haven't looked on other women. He's a married man. He goes, I've made a covenant with my eyes. I don't look at other women. Verse 5. If I have walked in vanity, or my, if my foot has hastened to deceit. He didn't walk in vanity. He didn't live a vain lifestyle. He didn't go chasing after money. Verse 7. If my step hath turned out of the way, and mine heart walked after mine eyes, and if any blot hath cleaved to my hands. So he, he said that I live a very straight life. I, I live it straight down the line. I follow the rules. Verse 9, if mine heart have been deceived by a woman or if, if I have laid wait at my neighbour's door, he never committed adultery, he said. Verse 13, if I did despise the cause of my manservant or my maidservant when they contended with me. In other words, he said, I looked after all the people that worked for me. I cared for their needs. 
Verse 16, if I have withheld the poor from their desire and have caused the eyes of the widow to fail. He goes, I gave money to the poor. I looked after the widows and the orphans. Verse 19, if I have seen any perish for want of clothing or, or any poor without covering, he gave to the poor on a regular basis. Verse 21, if I've lifted my hand up my hand against the fatherless when I saw my help in the gate. He didn't, he didn't mistreat people. Verse 24, if I've made gold my hope or I've said to the fine gold, thou art my confidence. He goes, I put no confidence in, in money or assets. Verse 25, if I rejoice because my wealth was great and because mine hand hath gotten much. Money meant nothing to him, even though he was one of the richest men in the world. Verse 26, if I beheld the sun when it shined or the moon walking in brightness. He's saying, I never worshipped any other God except the true one. I didn't go bowing to the sun. I didn't go bowing to the moon. I didn't worship other gods. I worshipped only one. Verse 29, if I rejoiced at the destruction of him that hateth me or lifted up myself when evil found him, neither have I suffered my mouth to sin by wishing a curse to his soul. Paul says, even my enemies I didn't wish anything bad for. I even, I even wasn't happy when something bad happened to my enemies. Verse 32, the stranger did not lodge in the street, but I opened my doors to the traveller. Verse 33, if I covered my transgressions as Adam mine hide, uh, by hiding my iniquity in my bosom. He was always honest with God. He never, ever hid his sin. Now, that's a decent list. That's a quite a good record for someone who's gone through all the suffering that he did. These things may have been true. God doesn't refute them. God doesn't say, no, you lied. God doesn't say, yeah, you didn't give money to the poor or you didn't do this or you didn't do that or I know that you sinned when you didn't. God doesn't say that to him. In Job's mind, they were definitely true declarations about himself. And he says, even if they're not true, let more judgment come on me. But a testimony about himself is not what God wanted God didn't want Job to give a list of all the wonderful things that he did. That's not what God wanted. God didn't want Job to justify himself in the wake of the suffering that he'd been through. Now let me bring to you the same type of problem that we have. Is that when we go through suffering... The first thing that comes into our mind is, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve the suffering. Isn't that true? Isn't that one of the first thoughts that comes to your mind? When you go through some illness, or someone gets sick who's close to you, or someone dies next to you, or you lose your job because someone's not fair to you, or whatever else it is that we go through, the first thing that might pop into our mind is, I don't deserve this. I'm not that bad. Well, neither did Job. But God didn't want Job to give him a list and say, look at me, I don't deserve any of this. I did all these things right. God wanted him to learn. God wanted Job to learn that our righteousness is not the thing that we wave in front of God and say, look how good I am. Make sure you hold off on, on those, uh, those judgments. Make sure you hold off on the suffering over here. Our righteousness does not get us into heaven. But it's the righteousness of Christ that gets us into heaven. It's God's righteousness that we need to be in awe of. The problem is that God doesn't want us comparing our righteousness to his. And this is what Job needed to learn. After all these things that happened to Job, and of all the conversations that he had with his friends, we find Job at the end. Turn with me to Job 42. We find Job clicked. The light bulb went on. And Job learned a valuable lesson in all of this. It says in Job chapter 42, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. 
Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not. Things too wonderful for me which I knew not. Here I beseech thee and I will speak. I will demand of thee and declare thou unto me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eyes seeth thee. Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. So look at the difference. One minute Job saying, look at all the things that I've done. And the next thing he's saying, you know something, I spoke without realising it. You know, I heard you before, but now I actually see. And when anyone has caught a glimpse of God, when anyone in the Bible has the slightest picture of him, and if you look at Isaiah, the beginning of Isaiah, when he sees God on his throne, the first thing that he says is, woe is me. And, and Job had the same, the same vision. When he finally saw God for who he was, the righteousness, the holiness, the perfection, he said, whoa, I've been talking a bit too much. I, I, I said things that I shouldn't have said, I didn't understand. Now I'm looking at you, I can see you, and I abhor myself. So Job, a righteous man by our standards, realised he wasn't righteous at all when he compared himself to God. This is the lesson that Job needed to learn. But the greatest example we have of this type of growth and discipline is Jesus. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2 with me. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9 says, But we see Jesus. You like that? We see Jesus. The same way that Job saw God who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honour, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. You understand that the captain of our salvation was made perfect through sufferings. He was made perfect. Even the saviour of the world, even the son of God was made perfect through sufferings. The greatest example we have of the type of learning that God wants us to do, which comes through suffering, is Jesus. Because he was perfect in his nature already. But yet God esteemed him stricken for our sakes. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. By his stripes we are healed. By his chastisement we have life. Why? Because in the end God had perfectly trained his son perfectly trained him to be able to go all the way to a cross and bear the sins of the entire world and go through with it. And so where the living fruits of that training that he went through? He was perfected with sufferings and Jesus says that a servant cannot be greater than his master. My question to you is, do you want to be trained? How high do you want to be in heaven? What rewards are you looking for there? How much do you want to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant? How much do you want to hear that? We don't have much time. My question to you is, how much do you want God in your life? How much do you want to be like Jesus? That will determine how much suffering you're willing to go through. 
It's up to you in the end. If Jesus is your example, if he's the captain of your salvation and you desire to be brought to glory, what type of glory are you looking for? What is it? Where do you want to be throughout all of eternity? Where? Do you want to be someone who gets through by the skin of their teeth and be known for that? Do you want to be known for that in heaven? That's someone who just made it by the skin of their teeth. Or do you want to be someone who's actually called great in heaven? Because Jesus says there are those who will be greatest in heaven. And which means there will be those who are lesser in heaven. Where are you building your treasure? Where are you building your wealth? What is your aim today? Where do you spend most of your time in your life? If you don't go through suffering now, it may mean that you are an illegitimate child. Do you understand that? Turn, to, turn forward in Hebrews to chapter 12. We're coming to the end here. If you experience no pain, if you experience no suffering in your life, and I'm not talking about sicknesses and illnesses because everyone in the world experiences those. We're not special with that. But if you experience no suffering because of your relationship with God, none at all, if you don't go through anything in your life that shows that you are his child, let me show you what Hebrews chapter 12 verse 9 says. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. But he, for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now chastening for the present seemeth to be... No, sorry, now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them, which are exercised thereby. God wants to make us holy. And Paul says here that if our earthly fathers disciplined us to, to raise us up, then we should more accept the discipline of God. But also it says in that same passage that if we don't endure anything, if we experience no discipline of God, then we are, it calls us bastards. Illegitimate children. I use that word not as a swear word. I use that word in this legitimate sense. Are you a child of God this morning? That's the most important question you can ask yourself. There is no other important question in this world if you haven't answered that one first. Because everything else hinges on that. If you haven't got that answered in your life, then everything else is a waste of time. You being here is a waste of time. Complete waste. Unless you actually know that you are a child of God. And if you don't, why do you risk dying walking out this door? Why do you risk not being actually able to make it home alive tonight? Or maybe dying of some, some accident? Do you think that you will, if you're not sure, someday reach your deathbed and you'll have a plenty of time to make the decision? I tell you, no. That's foolish thinking. That you think that if I don't make the decision today, I'll have tomorrow. You may not have tonight. You may not make it out of, the, out of this door. Why do you flirt with death? It's the most important question you can answer. We must remember that God is in it for our good. He wants to make us holy because he wants us to have a wonderful life after here. After. He's building up. He wants us to build treasure in heaven. He wants us to have riches beyond our imagination in heaven. He wants us to have the highest position. Do you want it? How much do you want it? When God ploughs the ground of our hearts, when he breaks the clods, when he sows the seed of the word in our lives, he wants the fruit. And sometimes he will beat us with a rod to get that fruit. But you know something? How beautiful is it 
when the fruit is actually produced. You know the feeling. If you're one of his children, you know the feeling of producing fruit in your life. Not just the feeling, but the joy of showing that in heaven will one day be something we can't even compare to anything on earth. We need to trust God. We need to say to God, God, whatever you want me to do, whatever suffering you want me to go through, I'm ready. I want to be your child. I want to grow. I want to be holy like Jesus is holy and I'm ready for the lesson. Are you ready for that? Be careful what you pray for. So God says in Isaiah 28, 23, Give ye ear and hear my voice, hearken and hear my speech. In verse 26 he says, For his God doth instruct him discretion and doth teach him. And in verse 29 it says, This also cometh forth from the Lord of hosts, which is wonderful in counsel and excellent in working. Is he your teacher? If you're a willing student today, then study. Allow him to teach you. Allow him to work in your life. Don't run. Don't run from the lessons. Accept the lessons and grow. And commit your life to him 100%, not 95 or 85 or 10. God bless you.